my name is Sharon Salzberg, and I'd like to uh, welcome you as well here to Spirit Rock. On my right is Joseph Goldstein, and on my left is um, Steve Armstrong, and then Kamala Masters. And together we'll be leading this retreat. Steve and Kamala came here from their home in Maui, especially to teach this retreat. So I always think they get extra credit <laughs> every time they leave Maui. <laughs> it's particularly meritorious. Also, um, next to Joseph, on, on my right is Linda McDonald, and um, she and Renata Seaforth, who are, who's over on the extreme uh, of my left, will be assisting us. Linda has been a leader of the uh, meditation group in Vancouver for a very long time and is a teacher trainee of the uh, group that's training teachers at the Insight Meditation Society. And Renata has been um, teaching in Switzerland and Germany. And um, they both have an incredible amount of meditation experience. So. Um, There'll be various things that they'll be doing throughout the retreat, such as making themselves available for individual sign-ups for those of you who want some extra um, attention or, or um, conversation about your experience. So we're very grateful that they could be here, and we're very grateful you all could be here. It's funny because uh, Joseph and I and some other friends taught one of the first retreats at Spirit Rock. I think it was the third one once it opened, and I remember coming in to this hall, and it felt blank. It just felt like a blank slate, and poised, about, about to begin its existence. And so I walked in today, and it felt uh, just filled with peace. And I thought, well, it didn't take that long, did it, for everyone's energy to actually begin to permeate this very big expanse of space. So it was quite fun to, to experience that. Tonight we're just going to briefly introduce the practice, the context, the flavor of the meditation practice. We'll formally begin the retreat by taking the refuges and the precepts. And then tomorrow morning we will begin more extensively elaborating on the the nature of our experience here. I wanted to start by reading a poem by William Stafford, who wrote, The things you do not have to say make you rich. Saying the things you do not have to say weakens your talk. Hearing the things you do not need to hear dulls your hearing. The things you know before you hear them, this is you, and this is the reason that you are in the world. I just love that last line particularly. The things you know before you hear them. I can remember when I was first introduced to the teachings of the Buddha, I was a a college student at the State University of New York at Buffalo in the uh, late 60s and early 70s. And I took a course in Asian philosophy which had a, a Buddhism component. And as soon as I heard the elements of the teaching of the Buddha, it was just like that. Something inside of me said, that's right, that's true. I wish I could have said that myself, or I wish I had the words to articulate that truth, which I have sensed so clearly, so, um, so directly. That, I think, is the best understanding one can have of a path of, of wisdom unfolding, is that we have a sense of what is true often, 
but it's unformed, it's untrusted, it's unseen, it's kind of half-seen. And so we come to a retreat, an experience like this, in order to have the opportunity not to adopt someone else's belief system or, or dogma or interpretation of what is true, but in order to have room for that, that intuitive knowing to come forth. To have the time and the space where we're not burdened by other responsibilities, we're not torn apart by distractions, and we can use the tools of silence, concentration, insight, for that very deep knowing to come forth and to, to have a sense of honoring that which we do know. I love the moment actually when the bell rings for this sitting, that sense of gathering, all these people coming from you know, up the hill or down the hill or, or wherever we've come from, because it's, first it's, it's emblematic of the gathering we've done today. You know, I came from Los Angeles, other people came from other places, and we're all just coming together. It's all of this energy coming together. And that is also symbolic of the nature of the practice, that most of us know, either through previous meditation experience or even just from times when we've sat down to try to think something through in a thorough way, most of us know that our minds tend to be pretty fragmented. Our energy tends to be fairly scattered. Now we sit down, perhaps with the stated goal of feeling the breath or thinking through a problem, and before we know it, our mind has leaped into the past, something that happened that we, we quite regret and yet can do nothing about. Or our minds leap forward into the future as we create perhaps a very elaborate scenario of something that has not happened and may never happen and yet we're filled with anxiety about it. All of this is the, the dissipation, the scattering, the fragmentation of our being. So one of the things we do in meditation practice is we gather all that energy back in, just like we have gathered here physically as a community. We gather the energy back in so that it is returned to us, so that it becomes available to us. This is the power of concentration. to reclaim our own power of mind. Because really, that's a lot of energy. As I used to hear this example in my early practice in India, I would think, well, isn't it strange that that energy actually is our own? It's not something we have to beseech something else or another agency for. It is our own, but we waste it. We lose it. So just as we've gathered here, we gather our energy together. We reclaim it. And in that, we experience the wholeness of our being. Practicing concentration, practicing awareness, practicing qualities like loving kindness, compassion. What we experience is a wholeness of being that is not dependent upon the arising and passing away of various conditions. Many years ago, some friends and I we were hiking in a state park. And we decided we were going to hike in for three days along a certain trail. And then on the fourth day, we were going to hike back out following exactly that same trail, retracing our steps. So 
This was still the third day and we were on our way in. And it turned out to be a day of many, many, many hours of quite steady, unremitting downhill walking. Until this friend I was with, it's almost like we, we had a simultaneous realization. <laughs> we both just stopped in our tracks and he looked at me and he said, in a dualistic universe, downhill can only mean one thing. <laughs> and he was right. Because the very next day, when we turned around and retraced our steps, it was many, many, many hours of very constant uphill walking. On a certain level, not certainly necessarily on all levels, but on a certain level, we live in a dualistic universe. We have pleasure and pain. We have gain and loss. We have praise and blame. We have uphill and downhill. And our lives change on a dime. In a moment that which we have cherished can start to disappear. Everything is constantly moving and changing, up and down all of the time. What we cultivate in meditation, what we discover in meditation, is a quality of of heart, of mind, of awareness, of compassion that is not broken that is not shattered as we go up and as we go down. It's just the nature of things. We often feel that we should be in control of the unfolding of events. But alas, things aren't like that. Just now I tried to turn on the air conditioning in a room here and I think I turned on the heat. You know, it wasn't very pleasant. We might come in here with the greatest resolve in our minds and say, okay, I've, I've practiced for so long now and I'm, I'm really sick of falling asleep and I've decided I'm never going to fall asleep meditating again. In the immortal words of the late Lama Trungpa Rinpoche, good luck. <laughs> Trungpa Rinpoche was one of the first Tibetan Lamas um, to come to the West and people would present whatever drama or notion they were going through at the time, and he would just look at them and say, good luck. (laughs) And so it is. The cascade of experiences of joy and sorrow, so many things, constantly changing. It's the nature of life, and so it's the nature of our meditation practice. It's not that in meditation somehow, if we did it well enough, we would succeed in flattening all of that out and somehow muting it, making it all kind of bland and gray. But rather, we come to appreciate, experience and appreciate the power of mind that exists, of awareness, presence, concentration, compassion, regardless of the circumstances. And that's why in meditation practice, one of the most important understandings and one of the hardest to believe is that it actually doesn't matter what you're experiencing and you can't be doing it wrong what matters is not what we're experiencing but how we're experiencing it whether we are in touch with and and nurturing those powers of mind in the face of anything that's why there's no possibility really of failing at this. It's so hard to believe. 
the spirit or the attitude that helps us enormously is to separate from our normal habit of judgment and acquisition and to allow the practice to unfold however it will. In a way, it's like suspending our impatience, suspending our our habit of judgment. As many of you have heard us talk about, one or another of us, when we first began the Insight Meditation Society in, in Barry in the East Coast, it was 1976. We moved in on Valentine's Day, 1976. And very soon afterwards, within a month, we received two letters that were remarkable for how they were addressed. The first was addressed, instead of to the Insight Meditation Society, it was addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. (laughs) And the second was addressed to the Hindsight Meditation Society. And for a very long time, the Instant Meditation Society was really my favorite. I used to look at the envelope and think, what were they thinking? But it's so indicative of the cultural norm that our gratification, our satisfaction has to happen instantly. And if it doesn't, then the endeavor, the the project, the work isn't worth it. But nowadays, actually, the Hindsight Meditation Society is is quite my favorite (laughs) because I know at this point how many times I have undergone a sitting period or a retreat or a whole period of practice thinking nothing was happening, it was kind of useless, or I was just treading water, I was sliding backwards, or I had some kind of negative judgment in my mind about it, only later to look back and say, you know, that was really important after all. In a way, I never could have imagined at the time it was happening. So I've come to believe very strongly in the Hindsight Meditation Society just to give up all of that judgment and assessing and checking and evaluating, simply to do the practice, allow it to unfold. I sometimes say one of the great spiritual experiences of my life was when I was um, in New York City checking into a hotel, and I was going up in the elevator to my room when I realized that I was carrying my very heavy suitcase in my arms, and I had the rather brilliant thought, put it down. The elevator will carry it for you. What we need to do is gather our energy together, show up for our experience, tap into that facility for awareness, for compassion, and let the practice unfold. We don't need to manage it. One of my favorite understandings or sense of meditation practice is that the great life lessons come in little packages. And so it all sounds so simple. And yet it's revolutionary in its transformative power. If you say something like, sit down and try to feel your breath, the normal natural breath. It sounds so simple. And almost always our acquisitive tendency, our judgmental tendency, gets revved up. We think, well, yesterday I could be with three breaths in a row, you know, today I should be with 18 breaths in a row, and, you know, if I really squeeze my mind tight and clamp down and refuse to let any thoughts enter, maybe I can be with 40 breaths in a row, and and then I'll be doing really well. 
And it's not like that at all. In fact, because our attention in general has been trained to be scattered, what we discover is that maybe we can be with one breath and then the mind goes. Maybe we can be with three breaths and then the mind goes. And in fact, the crucial moment in that kind of practice or that aspect of practice happens not in being with the breath, but it happens when we realize we've become distracted. We've been lost. We've, our attention has wandered. In that moment when we kind of come to and we think, oh, breath, it's been quite some time. You know, in that moment, can we be gentle? Can we let go? Can we have compassion for ourselves? Can we practice forgiveness of ourselves? Can we, can we be at ease rather than belaboring the point? Like, how in the world did I end up thinking about this? Can we practice the, the phenomenal renewing power of always being able to begin again? no matter what our experience has been, no matter how far we have deviated from our chosen course, no matter how grave the mistake we've made, we can always, always begin again. So the critical moment is that moment when we realize, oh, it's been quite some time since I last felt my breath. What do we do right then? What are we practicing? What are we cultivating? It's different from what we think. It should all be about. And yet here's a huge life lesson. Without giving ourselves a lecture, this is what we are practicing, all of those qualities. To be able to start over, to be able to forgive ourselves, to be able to have compassion, it's very powerful. So even though the instructions might sound extremely simple, they have a tremendous transformative potential, all of them. And so if you can undertake this retreat very much in that spirit, as much as possible, trying to let go of the habits of mind, of judging and assessing all of the time, comparing all of the time, and being with your experience however it is, cultivating as much awareness, clarity, compassion as possible. That way there is nothing that is outside of the range of experience. Because otherwise our meditation practice is something that we cannot take with us into a range of experience in our lives. In recent years I've spent a lot of time in New York City teaching And uh, there's one beautiful Tibetan center I was teaching in some years ago where you couldn't actually enter the room that was the center by going in the front of the building, the main entry of the building. You had to go all the way behind the building and down this alleyway to go up this set of stairs to go into the the, uh, actual hall. And Very often when we teach meditation, the the first instruction we give, even before the breath, is to sit down and listen to sound. Because sometimes in the act of listening, we feel our way into that quality of awareness, which is open, which isn't controlling, 
We don't feel responsible for prolonging the sound or stopping the sound. We can just be with it and be very relaxed. So this was the beginning of a six-week series of classes. And I began, and I spoke for a while, and then I gave that instruction. I said, okay, let's meditate now, and we'll begin by just relaxing, closing our eyes, and listening to sound. And that very second I said that, some man came into the alleyway and he started screaming obscenities. And, you know, he'd call out somebody's name and a whole long list of obscenities and then someone else's name and a whole long list of obscenities. And, of course, everyone was completely hysterical. And I was sitting there thinking, well, how many people does he know? You know, it's like, <laughs> he's just going on and on and on and on. And finally, you know, he stopped and we sat. And then I rang the bell at the end of the sitting and I said, you know, it's funny, you give that instruction in Barry, Massachusetts, and you hear these little bird chirping sounds, you know, and you hear the wind rustling through the leaves, and you give that instruction in, off an alley in New York, and you don't know what's going to happen. But the truth is, we never know what's going to happen. We just don't know. And so to have the capacity of heart to be whole, to be free, with whatever is happening, is what the meditation is about. That's why it makes our lives bigger and not more constrained, not smaller. And this is how we practice here together. It's a wonderful opportunity. I mean, how rare is it to be able to leave aside all of those responsibilities to come together uh, in such a supportive community? It's really an extraordinary thing. That's one of the reasons that we ask you to undertake a practice of silence, even though we're available for questions and there will be interview times in which we ask you to speak directly about your experience. It's an amazing thing to come together in a community that's making a friend of silence so that our, our being here is not based on trying to present ourselves to the world in a certain way. You know, sometimes people think about having to be silent and they feel quite unnerved. And they think, oh, that's going to be, you know, I don't mind the practice, or I don't mind not reading, or I don't mind some of the other things, but not speaking. That's, that's too strange. But in fact, it tends to be, often as people look back on the retreat, it's often the aspect of being here that people will point to as having been the most beautiful. It's like for once in our lives, we have the opportunity just to be quiet, and to be ourselves, not to be presenting ourselves, not to have a, an image we're fostering as special or different or um, boring or whatever it is. And really to look at our own experience, to come back to our own experience. It's quite wondrous. So I ask you to really use this opportunity very fully. You can do it lightheartedly with a great sense of of wholeheartedness at the same time. When we practice in a situation like this, it is about fostering our own understanding. It's using all of the tools and techniques and the supportive community and the guidelines, all of it, in order to bring forth our own sense of, of what is true. One of the great Lines, one of my early teachers, a man named Manindra, uh, said to me was, 
The Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem. Now you solve yours. And actually, it was fantastic. Sometimes people um, don't like it when I say that, but uh, they think it wasn't kind or something. But actually, it was, it was incredibly kind. And I think it was probably the first time in my life that somebody looked at me with that sense of conviction, as though to say, you can solve your problem. You can solve the problem of the confusion or the unhappiness that brought you to want to learn meditation to begin with. You can. And so even though the, in general the, the context in which we teach rests upon the teachings of the Buddha, that's the language, those are the images, that's the metaphor, certainly being here is not about becoming a Buddhist. It is about using these tools to come closer to that, that depth within ourselves. In fact, when I think of the Buddha... I think of also, um, I think of it in terms of a transparency. We look at the Buddha, who's a symbol, an image of a being who is free, free of conditioning, free of habit, free of limitation, a being that is expressive of, of boundless compassion, boundless wisdom. And for me, when I first saw a Buddha, I don't mean like when I was growing up in New York, you know, in Chinatown or something, but when I first saw a Buddha image in India and first heard about the Buddha, it became for me a symbol of integration, an integrated being. You know how most of us are kind of one way when we're alone? Maybe we're full of loving kindness for all beings when we're alone, but we have great fear when we're actually with others, or we're fine with others, but we find it unbearable to be alone, or we're one way at work and another whole way with our families, our lives tend to be fragmented in that way. So I saw the Buddha as a completely integrated being, somebody who was who he was, no matter what situation he was in, where the threads of wisdom and compassion guided him, whether he was alone or with others, whether he was in the monastery teaching or wandering, it didn't vary, it didn't waver. So when we look at the Buddha, it's not really that we're looking at the Buddha, it's almost like a transparency. We're looking through the Buddha at ourselves, at our own potential to be an integrated being, to be at one with ourselves, to be free, to have boundless compassion. So we look at the Buddha to see ourselves. And we look at ourselves, not like, wow, aren't I fantastic? You know, this is, this is so unique. But when we look at ourselves on that level, when we see that potential for awakening that exists within us, we see that potential for awakening which exists within all beings. So we look at ourselves, not for our gaze to stop at ourselves, but to look through ourselves to see all beings. That's who the Buddha really is. The teachings of the Buddha are known as the Dharma, or Dhamma in Pali, Dharma in Sanskrit, which means the, the nature of things, the way things are, the truth of things. And the community who have, which has preserved these teachings since the time of the Buddha the community of beings 
from beginningless time, who have practiced a way, who have had the courage to take a risk, to be unconventional, to seek freedom, known as the Sangha. The Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha form the the three refuges or the, the basis of our vision of possibility. And so with that kind of light in mind that we have, each of us, a potential for discovering our own very deepest sense of the truth. We have within us a potential for a quality of happiness or peace or composure that will not shatter and break in the face of change. We have within us a potential for realizing a tremendous power of awareness and compassion. Using that as a guide, we can step by step and moment by moment being at ease within do the practice. So I think at this point I'll um, turn things over to Kamala. He'll speak more about the nature of the retreat environment. Thank you for the tremendous effort that you've all made to be here as a householder. Myself, I know how much it takes to prepare the family to get here, or even if you don't have a family, uh, children and people that you take care of. It, it's a tremendous effort just to be here. Uh, all the things that we must do to arrange our lives, to take the time for this precious time for ourselves. So thank you for caring for yourselves, and it's really important for us to all be here together. Tonight I'd like to speak about the precepts, or those um, mm, agreements that we all have that in order, that makes it easy for us to be together. And so uh, when we're here together, We're here for the purpose of training our minds and opening our hearts. And we need a tremendous amount of safety within ourselves and within our community to do that. So undertaking the training of the precepts helps us to feel safe. It helps us to trust ourselves more because we can trust our environment Undertaking the trainings of the precepts also helps us to realize who we are most deeply, the compassion and wisdom that's within us. It's a deep expression of our humanness to undertake these trainings of non-harming. It also leads us onward on our path, leads us closer to freedom. So I'd like to speak about each one of those a bit. 
The first one is undertaking the training to refrain from harming any living being. Now remember when we say the precepts, we start out with that phrase, I undertake the training. So that reminds us that these are not commandments, they're trainings. Um, These trainings help us to be more aware, more mindful, more present. Undertaking the training to refrain from harming any living being. So that includes all the little critters around here too. It really helps us to be more mindful. Um, I got uh, a little teaching from the Dalai Lama once. He said that even he has to really watch himself in, in this particular first precept. And it helps him even to be much, much more mindful and not only watch his actions, but his deep intentions, those habitual intentions that arise. So he watches them with mosquitoes that land on his arm or somewhere on his head or somewhere on his body. And that intention that's habitual, that just moves our hand to strike out at the mosquito and to obliterate it. And so uh, then he remembers, oh, I've undertaken this training, this precept. And so sometimes his hand may go up, he says, and then he realizes what's happening, and then he maybe brings the, the arm closer to him, and he blows. <sighs> he blows on it. And then sometimes he remembers even before the hand goes up. And then he can say, well, have a nice meal to the mosquito. <laughs> so it's, we're developing a lot here, not just non-harming, but we're watching uh, what's going on in our minds. We're developing much more deeply than just non-harming. So the first training is to refrain from harming any living being, each other, Um, through non-killing specifically in this precept, but in any way that we might feel that we're harming another being. Uh, A few and more people point out to me, sometimes it's harmful when we use scents that are harmful to them, scents, fragrances, and uh, ask me to specifically mention that, because some people are very sensitive to fragrances. And so, a way to look at that, non-harming. And the second precept has to do with undertaking the training to refrain from taking what is not offered, or from stealing. And so that, when we practice that, that creates an incredibly safe environment, when we know that we can leave our sitting cushions, or even... um, some people carry their purses around or whatever, and we know that nobody will take them. I remember uh, Sharon a few times heard in a Dharma talk, and I never get tired of hearing it, Sharon, <laughs> about one of the retreats with um, the staff or young, young people, and their parents came. And the, uh, the parents would carry their purses with them. The, the uh, ladies would carry their purses with them, to their sitting cushion, they'd be 
holding their purses with them wherever they went. But here we feel that, uh, most of us feel that we don't have to do that, we can leave them in our rooms, and we feel fairly safe. And why is that? A lot of it's because we know that each one of us are on the same page, or at least that's what we're trying to do. So, refraining from taking what has not been offered. And you might extend that out to a lot of other areas. The food, perhaps. You know, it's, it's not something about stealing, but when we see what the, is there, what is offered, and sometimes we say, mm, or we wish there was more, or chocolate chip cookies, or ice cream, or something like that. And within myself, sometimes I have that sense that I want more than what is actually there. And I remind myself, this is what's being offered. Can I just accept what's being offered? And it's a, it's a great relief when I remember that, because the mind doesn't get splayed out or fractured out to all the various things that I can think about that I would want. The mind stays more centered, more gathered in one place. There's a lot of ways that we can use that training. And the third training, the training, uh, the third training has to do about refraining from using our sexual energy during this time at the retreat. So we may practice what we call brahmacharya, where we're celibate, of course, during this time. And that's not to say anything judgmental about using our sexual energy, but it's, again, keeping our energy and putting it in the direction for another purpose. So I think that's pretty self-explanatory. We may take that even further and um, see whether there's ways that we maybe extend, extend ourselves energetically towards others here on the retreat in a kind of flirtatious or connecting way and see if we can refrain from doing that out of respect for the practice of others and definitely out of respect for our own practice to keep the direction of our practice very clear. The fourth training has to do with uh, undertaking the training to refrain from speaking what is not true. So, of course, 99% of that is taken care of by noble silence, which is uh, a very important support to our retreat. And then when we do speak, when we speak during interviews uh, or checking in, when we speak with during the group interviews or one-on-one, not just to be truthful, but to be very clear and very precise about what's going on in our practice. Many of us have practiced with a teacher, Upandita. He's one of our uh, elders, our teachers, and a lot of times I would hear him say, short and to the point. 
That's really helpful to me because it allows the mind to be very concise and very clear about what's going on. So in reporting our practice uh, in a very clear and concise way, I see that I can hone that precept, that training even more. Not just to be truthful, but to be concise, precise about what's going on. And the fifth precept is undertaking the training to refrain from using any kind of intoxicant or drug that will cloud the mind. So this very self-explanatory too. Anything that will cloud the mind. That means recreational drugs or um, anything that we might imbibe that will cloud the mind. Of course, to take our medicines, and we have to work with that. Any kind of medicines that the doctor has prescribed, we must take that. And we work with the mind in that form, however, whatever is happening. So we're going in the direction of more clarity, more understanding. And so this is why we undertake that training. All of these trainings are meant so that we come to a place of ourselves where we, within ourselves where we can feel more accepting, more trusting of ourselves and others too, of course, in this community where we can feel a lightness of heart that allows us to sit without remorse, without self-blame, without self-judgment, where we can develop compassion and wisdom, where we can really be ourselves. So this is the, the reasoning and the support that we give each other for undertaking these trainings. So may you feel the purity of your hearts through this um, retreat and through the uh, respecting of all of these precepts, which we will be chanting this evening. Steve uh, will lead us in the chanting of the uh, refuges and the precepts. And every morning, at the first sitting of the morning, we'll be chanting the refuges and the precepts to remind ourselves and each other of the direction of our lives and the direction of our day. So I'll leave it to Steve now to guide us in that, lead us in the chanting. as a way of formally uh, beginning this retreat or entering the retreat together, we usually or often take the refuges and precepts together. And we like to chant them in Pali, the language of the Buddha. Uh, Not because there's something particularly mystical or special about 
those particular sounds, but rather in a larger picture, it connects us to the hundreds, thousands, even millions of others who are today also taking refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha, taking the precepts as a practice, as they have been for the past 2,500 years. And so it brings us in alignment with a very large community of very concerned, uh, conscientious and practicing beings. There may be 130 or 40 of us here, and that's pretty substantial. But, you know, we're just part of the larger picture. And so all of our intention to practice the trainings that Kamala spoke about and to take uh, refuge uh, joins that of all others, similar-minded, open-hearted people. So tonight we don't have any chant sheets, but I think I have been assured they will appear tomorrow and be distributed then. But for the first tonight and for the first couple of days at the 545 sitting, I will chant one line and ask you to repeat it after me. And then after a couple of days when you know it, the tune and the pronunciation and what it means, then we can chant it in unison. And it's usually a very beautiful thing to chant together like that. So this evening we'll take the refuges and precepts. And initially we, we chant an homage to the Buddha. Then we take the three times. Then we take the five, or we take the three refuges three times. And we take the five precepts once. And then we acknowledge, uh, we make a, an acknowledgement that may these trainings or may the taking of the refuges and precepts support our aspiration to uh, awaken. Okay? So, please repeat after me. <clears throat> namo, Namo Tassa Bhagavato Sabagawato Arahato Arahato Sama Samburasa Sama Samburasa Namo Namo Tassa Bhagavato Sabagawato Arahato Arahato Sama Samburasa Sama Samburasa Namo Namo Tassa Bhagavato, Tassa Bhagavato, Arahato, Arahato, Sama Samburasa, Sama Samburasa, Pudang Sarananga Chami, Pudang Sarananga Chami, Dahmang Sarananga Chami, Dahmang Sarananga Chami, Sanghang Sarananga Chami, Sanghang Sarananga Chami, Dutiampi Bhutang Sarananga Chami, Dutiampi Bhutang Sarananga Chami, 
ตติยัมภีสังขังสรณังกัจจามิตติยัมภีบุตรังสรณังกัจจามิตติยัมภีดัมมังสรณังกัจจามิตติยัมภีดัมมังสรณังกัจจามิ ตัตติยามภีสังขังสรณังกัจจามิปานาติปัตตาปานาติปัตตาเวรามณีเวรามณีสิกขาปัตตังสิกขาปัตตังสมาริยามิสมาริยามิฮาดีนาดานาฮา
letting your attention be open and receptive to all sounds that appear. without comment or explanation, just hearing. (laughs) Letting go of any agenda, just receiving the sounds that occur without comment, with that same quality of open, receptive attention, receiving the sensations that appear in the body, sensations of sitting, or maybe temperature, sensations at the surface of the skin or deep within the body, openly receiving them, again without comment or judgment or evaluation, just noticing sensations appearing in the body. Some of what you'll notice is the rhythm of the breath, the belly rising and falling, or the chest expanding, contracting, or the air passing through the nostrils, Let your attention rest where you notice the breath most clearly, most distinctly. Recognize the in-breath is like this, the out-breath is like that. When you breathe in, know that you're breathing in. When you breathe out, know that you're breathing out. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.